Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Georgia in the U.S. is nicknamed the Peach State, but it's known for other things. If you like peanuts or pecans, there's a good chance they came from Georgia. Small counties such as Dawson and Gilmer in northeast Georgia are an hour's drive from Gainesville a mid-sized city offering historical and walking tours, arts, and culture. In 1989, Keith Evans was an all-around good kid living in Dawsonville, a small town known for its moonshine distillery, where you can still get a taste of traditional moonshine made from a 150-year-old recipe. It's also known for its outdoor rugged beauty. On the edge of the North Georgia mountains, the Amakulula Falls cascade down 729 feet over rock walls. And nearby, you can start your hiking journey on the Appalachian Trail that spans 2,000 miles through 14 states. Keith was a freshman at Gainesville State College, studying accounting and working full-time in the evenings as a store's manager at the food center, a small supermarket in Cumming. Two days after Christmas, festive lights were lighting the evening sky when two men, John Waldrop and Robert Gardner, burst in and robbed the supermarket. Keith was on the cash register and the only witness. Robert and John were both suspects, but only John was charged, and Keith was the state's only witness, who testified at John's trial in 1990. He was found guilty of the robbery. However, his lawyer filed a motion for a new trial, and it was granted. Pending his retrial, John was released from prison and out on bond. Court records indicated that on April 13, 1991, 12 days before John's retrial was to start, police got a big break when they talked to Robert, who was in prison on another matter. For the first time, he implicated both John and himself in the robbery and provided police with a statement. He was then scheduled to testify against John at his retrial, along with Keith, and John's attorney was notified. Three days later, John visited the Forsyth County Jail to visit a prisoner he knew. He asked Thomas Hitchcock to inform him if Robert was brought into the jail before the retrial began. And as John hoped, six days later, on April 12th, Robert was taken to the Forsyth County Jail. The next evening, Thomas made a collect call to Mark to let him know Robert was in the cell block with him. Thomas then called Robert over to the phone. John leaned on him hard, telling him that, my attorney says you're going to testify against me. Well, I worked too hard on this case, and you know, don't burn me like that. Robert was nervous and felt the pressure and assured John he wouldn't testify. Mark had no plans to return to trial or prison. He enlisted his dad, Tommy Waldrop, and his uncle, Howard Livingston, to help him ensure Keith wouldn't be testifying again. The threesome drove to Cleveland and bought a used station wagon for 150 bucks. They drove away, and within half an hour, the engine overheated. So they turned around, went back, and returned the car. 
That evening, around 9.30 p.m., Tommy borrowed his wife Linda's Ford Tempo and met up again with John and Howard. At 10.30 that night, Keith had just finished his shift at the supermarket, phoned his mom to tell her he was on his way home, and hopped into his almost brand new truck to make the 30-minute drive home. In early spring, it was dark and quiet on Route Number 9. Tommy, John, and Howard were cruising in the Tempo in Dawson City and were coming up to a highway crossing when they spotted Keith. They sped after him and forced him off the road. Then John pulled out a shotgun, raised it up, and fired two shots through the windshield. The birdshot hit Keith in the neck and face. He was seriously wounded, but still alive. Mark and Howard opened the driver's door and slid behind the wheel and onto the truck seat. With Keith in the passenger seat, they drove to Hughes Road as Tommy followed in the tempo. There, John beat him with a blackjack. Keith died at 23. They buried his body in a shallow grave in nearby Gilmer County. Now, in case you're wondering what a blackjack is, because I was wondering... It's a type of weapon similar to a baton or a small bat that's usually short so it's easy to conceal and it's heavy at the end for striking. Then Tommy and Howard set Keith's truck on fire and drove away, but not before dropping the Tempo's insurance card on the ground. At 11.30pm, a friend of Keith's was driving by and saw the truck on fire and called it in. Both fire and police personnel were dispatched to the scene. Authorities found a cap from a liquid container that smelled like gasoline, a weight from a wheel, and that insurance card. The Sheriff's offices from Dawson and Forsyth counties joined forces, along with the U.S. Forestry Service and the state. Knowing that Keith was going to testify on Monday, it seemed very likely he'd been a victim of foul play. On Sunday, Robert contacted the district attorney and informed him that John had threatened him. By contacting Robert, John had violated the conditions of his bond, so it was revoked and he was thrown back in prison. He was also arrested and charged with influencing a witness. Mark and Tommy were immediately suspects in Keith's disappearance. They interviewed Tommy first. He claimed that around 7 p.m. the night before, he'd been looking at a car to buy, then at 9 p.m. he went to visit his brother-in-law Howard and that he'd returned home by 11 p.m., Then they asked his wife, Linda, for her car's insurance card, and she produced it, but it was expired. Then they interviewed John, who claimed his father had dropped him off at a pool room the night before, and that he was with three friends until 11 p.m. when one of them dropped him off at home. But when all three friends denied being with Mark, he changed his story and said he'd been with a married woman and still maintained that he'd been home by 11 p.m. The Dawson's County Sheriff's Office focused on Tommy. They began surveillance outside the local church that, coincidentally, both the sheriff's family and Tommy attended. Later, the Forsyth News reported that Dawson County Sheriff Billy Carlisle and Sheriff's Deputy Kevin Tanner were watching from across the street when Tommy reportedly led a prayer and the children's choir. Billy said that floored him. How can you kill a boy on Saturday night and go to church on Sunday morning like nothing ever happened? I never could understand how he could have done that. After church, they followed him to a prison in Floyd County, where he was visiting another son who was incarcerated. They sat outside waiting for the Georgia Bureau of Investigation to issue a search warrant for his vehicle. It arrived just in time. 
When Tommy came out of the building, they confronted him. He was put in the back seat of Billy and Kevin's car, and during their trip back to Dawsonville, he made a comment that caught Billy's attention. Something to the effect of, I didn't mean for it to go this far, or we didn't mean for it to happen this way. Meanwhile, in Dawsonville, police received a report about signs of a struggle on Hugh Stowers Road. Numerous items were strewn about, including a glove, a cassette tape, a watch, Doral brand cigarette butts, broken glass from Keith's truck, a spent 20-gauge shell, a torn piece of Keith's shirt, and a clump of his hair, and blood that matched Keith's blood type. They also found tire tracks and three sets of shoe prints. The next morning, John was in prison waiting for his retrial to start when he stayed in front of two cellmates that the state didn't have a case on the robber charge because one of the witnesses who was supposed to testify against him had been killed. But Keith was only missing. Police did not know where he was or if he was alive or dead. The police searched the Ford Tempo and discovered blood throughout the vehicle and a gasoline container without a cap. The cap found at the truck fire fit the container. With Keith missing, the prosecution asked for a continuance on the robbery charges and retrial. And on Tuesday, Tommy was arrested by Forsyth County deputies for a probation violation. By Wednesday, coming police chief Wayne Lindsay said there was little hope for Keith. From the physical evidence we've seen, it doesn't look real good. I don't think we'll find him alive. Court records revealed when police visited Howard's residence, they found Doral brand cigarettes. On Thursday, Howard was picked up by Gainesville police on a misdemeanor charge, and Tommy was put under intense interrogation and eventually confessed to being involved with Keith's murder along with Mark and Howard. Tommy then led authorities to Keith's body in a rugged area near the base of Rich Mountain in North Georgia, about 50 feet off a dirt road, hidden amongst the trees, buried in a shallow grave. A Doral brand cigarette butt lay nearby. He also led them to the shotgun used in the murder. Tommy, John, and Howard were charged with murder. The district attorney said that the robber retrial would still proceed without Keith, but it would wait until after the murder trials. That night, Keith's autopsy would reveal that he died of a combination of gunshot blasts and head trauma, and that it appeared he had been dragged along the ground. All three pled not guilty. Three years later, they were tried in separate trials in different counties to avoid a tainted jury. Tommy's trial was first, and it was moved to Gwinnett County due to pretrial publicity. And three and a half years later, on October 26, 1994, Tommy was found guilty. He was convicted of a malice murder, two counts of felony murder, kidnapping with bodily injury, aggravated battery, five counts of aggravated assault, theft by taking a motor vehicle, arson in the second degree, influencing a witness, concealing a death, possession of a firearm by a convicted felon, and two counts of possession of a firearm during commission of a felony. He was given sentences totaling 70 years. On the murder charge, the jury recommended the death penalty. They detailed their finding as aggravating circumstances that the murder was committed while the defendant was engaged in the commission of kidnapping with bodily injury or aggravated battery, and that the murder 
was outrageously wanton, vile, horrible, and inhuman, in that it involved aggravated battery to the victim. Three days later, the jury deliberated for only four and a half hours before sentencing Tommy to die in the electric chair. Tommy was 47. District Attorney Lydia Sartain told the Atlanta Constitution that this case goes beyond Dawson County and it's about more than just the loss of a fine young man. Our whole criminal justice system is based on people coming forward and testifying. The system just can't tolerate witnesses being killed. A little over a year later, Tommy filed a motion for a new trial, which was denied. He then filed an appeal with the state in 1998, and six and a half years later, the Georgia Supreme Court denied his appeal. He then filed a federal appeal, and five years later, the U.S. Supreme Court denied it. Tommy had exhausted all his appeals. John was sentenced to a total of 30 years for the supermarket robbery and possession of a firearm during a crime, influencing a witness, and another possession of a firearm during a crime. Prosecutors had been seeking the death penalty for the murder, but instead he was sentenced to life in prison. Howard was sentenced to a total of 46 years for kidnapping, arson in the second degree, influencing a witness, possession of a firearm during a crime, concealing death of another, and theft of a motor vehicle. The prosecution did not seek the death penalty, and he was sentenced to life imprisoned for the murder. In 1997, the court reversed the conviction, and he was retried later that year and found guilty again on all charges. Immediately, a motion for a new trial was filed, which was denied a year later. An appeal was then filed and denied in 1999. On June 24, 2014, 23 years after he murdered Keith, the Georgia State of Corrections released a press release stating that the Dawson County Superior Court has ordered the execution of convicted murderer Tommy Waldrop. His execution was scheduled for Thursday, July 10th at 7 p.m., and that he would be the 32nd inmate in Georgia put to death by lethal injection. In the days leading up to the execution, the Board of Pardons and Parole members heard from both sides. Keith's family firmly stated they wanted the execution to continue. Tommy's family, friends, and even his lawyers pled for mercy on his behalf. Then in a shocking move, just 26 hours before he was to die, the Board commuted his sentence to life without parole. Members of the board do not have to give a reason, nor do they have to reveal which way members voted, only that it received a majority vote. One point that was brought up was that John and Howard hadn't received the death penalty, so their sentences were not proportional and that Tommy received a harsher sentence, even though it was John who pulled the trigger and beat Keith to death. In the last 12 years, this was the fifth time that a death sentence had been commuted by the board. Keith's sister Angela had planned to attend his execution and told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that she was driving when she received the call that the man convicted of her brother's death would not be executed. Afterwards, the family made a public statement that they were in shock and disbelief and that this is the outcome. We feel that the justice system failed Keith. They failed to protect him. They knew he was being threatened. We feel like the justice system failed him again. She went on to say, 
I think all three deserve the death penalty. It's a gruesome, horrible death they put my brother through, and that she was twenty when her brother's killers were tried, so she remembers those events clearly, and that he was protective of his younger sisters and doted on a sixteen-month-old niece, and that John had been threatened by Keith in the days just before the second trial, and she tells of a time when Keith asked his grandfather for advice, and he told him, You can't go wrong when you speak the truth. After Keith died, he blamed himself for 18 years, until his own death. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of a young mother and wife who disappeared in 1973 from a Tucson airport parking lot. When her husband's plane landed, Lisa Shaner was gone. Her father, an FBI agent, spent years looking for her killer, and 38 years later, he was found. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or Murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects and fasting studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.